When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Medieval History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Evan Zarkadas, your host, and today we will be talking to Dr. Claire Wieda, cultural historian at the Landen University in Netherlands, to talk about her newest book, Ethnicity in Medieval Europe, 1950-1250, Medicine, Power, and Religion, published in 2021 by the University of York, York Medieval Press. Um, in a new approach to representations of nationhood in medieval Western Europe, uh, Dr. Wieda argues that ethnic stereotypes were constructed and wielded rhetorically to justify things such as property claims, flaunt military strength, and assert moral and cultural ascendance over, over others. Um, gendered images of ethnicity in circulation reflect a negotiation over self-representation of discipline, rationality, and strength, juxtaposed with the alleged chaos and weakness of racialized others. Um, in, in this way, interpreting nationhood through a religious lens, monks and schoolmen explained it as scientifically informed by environmental medicine, an ancient theory that held that location and climate influenced the physical and mental traits of peoples. Um, drawing on lists of ethnic character traits, school textbooks, medical treatises, proverbs, poetry and, 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 and chronicles, um, this book shows that ethnic stereotypes served as rhetorical tools of power, crafting relationships within communities and towards others. Hello, Claire, and welcome to the show. Hi, and thanks very much for having me and for this invitation to talk about my book. Absolutely. It's it, it's a great pleasure. And as I did this uh, quick summary, uh, it's such a loaded volume with a lot of information. And I'm very glad we get to uh, discuss about it today. Yeah, it's very exciting. All right, awesome. Um, so, how did you come to write this book? Why, why medieval ethnicity? Um, yes, yeah, so it, it was. It took me a long time uh, to write it, and I've been working on the on the topic for a very long um, period. Um, and I, I actually started as an undergraduate when I uh, began to read history. And I, first of all, I was planning on doing modern history, but then I sort of got sucked into uh, the period known as the Middle Ages and, and, and never really sort of recovered from that. Um, I became really interested in satire, in satirical literature that was being produced um, in the 12th century in, in the new universities that were emerging in, in Europe at that time, in Paris and Bologna um, and in southern France. And um, I was really struck by it was just not what I expected at all that to find monks and priests, because these are the people who were going getting an education at that time, um, to actually 
be writing quite salacious poetry and also really poking fun at one another in satirical texts. Uh, for instance, Cistercian and Benedictine monks who could write, you know, quite vicious poetry. Uh, uh, satirical poetry about one another and attacking each other's customs and, and behavior. So this was really an eye opener um, to me because it was just such a different um, uh, image of, of the of the period of the 12th, 13th century that than I expected really when I first learned about the Middle Ages. You know, the general assumption is that it's a period that's very um, that well a period in which not a lot happens and it's quite apathetic and, and also unlearned. Um, but so this was a, a surprise. And that's how I really also um, became interested in and learned about all kinds of ethnic and racial stereotypes that were circulating in texts in that period. And I think maybe what sparked my interest as well is just the fact that I was myself born in uh, the United Kingdom, um, but my parents were Dutch. So, And then when I was a teenager, we moved back from England to the Netherlands. And so when I grew up, I was already sort of always sort of used to looking a bit as an outsider to at the culture that I was um, living in. Um, and what I noticed as a teenager was that really the both in England and in the Netherlands, uh, people were making the same kind of ethnic jokes about others um, and that they were not at all original, nor I have to say, I, I usually didn't find them very funny either. Um, but um, and in both countries, they seem to think that these jokes were um, that they <laughs> that, that they themselves had come up with these jokes. Um, and this so this made me sort of fascinated you know what what was going on here why um why were these jokes appealing in certain cultures um and then yeah i came across similar ethnic banter and rep but also racial stereotyping in 12th century sources um and and i realized that yeah it was it was a topic that hadn't really been researched um properly or at all really um so this became my dissertation topic. Uh, I did a, my PhD at the University of Amsterdam, and then I uh, ended up at Leiden University, where I'm still currently working. And um, from there on, I also became very interested in medical history, which is, as we'll be talking about, very much tied to these ethnic constructions of um, identity. And um, so that's how this book slowly um, evolved. Wow, that, that, that seems quite the journey. Absolutely. Quite a journey. A long and, journey. <laughs> yes, and I'm 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 very interested in learning more about the, the and of course reading from your book uh, all of this you know use of this kind of language and 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 ethnicity and identity um, you know it's it's always so interesting to see how these things come to be um, and it, as you mentioned even carry on through today um, so yeah that origin quite quite a lot there. Um, so let us dive into the book a little, a little bit then. So you split the book in two parts. Um, and the first talks about what binds ethnic groups in learned texts. And you chose 90, 950 to 1250. And then you analyze ideas about characteristics of ethnic groups. And as you mentioned, you talk about monastic lists, um, scientifically informed texts, and then you move on to military manuals. Um, so first for... 
somebody that does not know what medieval ethnicity means in this pe- period, what what does that entail? Uh, having ethnicity or the the idea of ethnicity in the in this period? Yeah. So um, in medieval texts from Europe in this period, um, there's a constant mention of ethnic groups. So they're called usually in the sources in Latin gentes, which is the plural of gens, people. Um, or naciones, a plural of nazio, uh, nations. Um, and you'll come across them in, for instance, uh, most chronicles. Um, there are chronicles written about the um, gentes anglicorum or the gentes franco, etc. Et so for um, it's a very common um, term. And in some cases also, authors from the period itself define what they think ethnicity is. Um, And they talk about it in terms of having a shared uh, descent, um, a lineage, uh, a common culture, for instance. um, And it's sometimes tied to to territories where these groups um, were dwelling. But it's important to realize that the actual groups themselves are fluid. um, And they can emerge in the sources, but they can also retreat from them. And the ethnonyms, so the the names applied to these groups, can also, for instance, change or refer to people populating different regions. So there isn't one ethnic group that emerges in, for instance, the 6th century and then just, you know, continues to uh, reproduce itself across the centuries. Um, For instance, the Franks um, in um, northern France, that there isn't one long tradition that they evolve into the French and then nowadays we have France. It's much more fluid. Um, it's uh, and, and, a, and a lot of these gentes are no longer groups that we talk about today. So instead of trying to pinpoint who these groups exactly were um, or how they emerged or who identified with them, I think it's useful and important to look really at how they were talked about, which is basically communication by contemporaries and what kind of discourses or ideas were feeding into how they were being talked about. And by that, I mean, for instance, religious ideas or, for instance, scientific ideas. So ideas about um, how groups emerge and um, what the qualities or traits of group members would be, because it turned out um, that in scientific thought in the 12th century, but also in in earlier periods, um, they did have actually quite specific ideas about the traits of groups. And then I think it's relevant to also um, to look at what purposes ethnic representations or ethnotypes um, can have. So they can, for instance, they can help uh, for people to bond in social relations, um, for instance, by making jokes among themselves. Um, But they can also, um, especially when certain group members are talking about other group members in a hierarchy, be used, for instance, to distribute rights, um, to make claims to property. And in the latter case, um, we're talking more about racial stereotypes than ethnic stereotypes. So I make a distinction between the two. 
so I began sort of exploring the underlying ideas about what shapes group characteristics in the period 950 to 1250. And it became clear to me that there were sort of two major strands of thought that were related to one another in this period. And then firstly, in the earlier period, so around 950, you mostly see listings of ethnic characteristics. And these are all I have to emphasize. So they are characteristics that are being talked about in the sources themselves, but they are um, representations that are not embedded mostly in actual behavioral realities. They are ethnic and racial stereotypes. Um, but just so you see these genealogical constructions of descent and then traits that are attributed to these lineages on the one hand. And then especially more so from about 1100 onwards, you see that group characteristics, so talking about the physical and mental features of groups, is considered to be determined also by places and environment. And the latter becomes particularly explicit when texts are translated from Arabic and Greek into Latin and then into vernacular languages, and more increasingly studied um, at the emerging universities, the centers of learning um, in the 12th century in Western Europe. This doesn't mean to say that um, the idea that environment um, shaped uh, ethnic traits is was completely absent in, in earlier periods. But because these universities emerge in the 12th century and their intellectuals come together to study medical texts, to study works of natural philosophy, um, it, they do begin to write about it much more and much more um, much more consciously. So you do see in a sort of explosion of texts in that period about this topic. And then also um, in the educational um, sphere, te textbooks of rhetoric, so advising students um, how to write, how to write poetry, how to describe, and also, for instance, how to describe other people, so in ethnography, use ethnic stereotypes in their manuals explaining how, um, if you want to write convincingly, you should talk about the essential characteristics of groups. So it's they stereotyping was considered in, in education in that period as, as well, as, as a sort of central component of of successfully um, describing uh, phenomena in the world. So my, uh, that's how I came to my sort of threefold um, division, the first part of the book, looking at first lists produced in a monastic context from 950 to the 12th century um, that talk about ethnic traits. And they do so mostly um, in a, which is a it's, a, it's called the translation concept. So they begin in with peoples living in the East um, and also peoples that are considered to be in the history of mankind, to be the, the peoples of the past. And they move throughout time and space from east to west, ending up with, for instance, listing traits of the Picts, um, the Scots, etc. Um, and from this Western European perspective, that is sort of the present um, and um, 
this is the the way that history and the history of humanity from this Western Christian perspective has 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 sort of travelled from east to west and from the past to the present, which is in their view um, Christianity. Uh, and then from the twelfth century, you see more and more that environment and place becomes important, especially in ethnographic descriptions. And then um, also increasingly in when. For instance, um, sources are talking about the characteristics of army recruits. So who's equipped, well-equipped to defend a territory, defend a domesticated space, and specifically in the context of labor and who has the rights to the fruits of labor. And you see in that sense that ethnicity and, the, and stereotypes are used particularly um in colonization efforts. So for instance, in the 12th century, Ireland is colonized by the Anglo-Normans. And there's a lot of ethnography that's being produced saying that the Irish have all kinds of um, traits of laziness, um, a a, a less developed urban, social and political um, structure. Um, and this is a justification for these Anglo-Normans to, to go in there and say, okay, we're here to create order. We're here to, to make sure that, that um, the territory where these people are dwelling is going to be um, tilled, you know, worked properly to, to reap the highest, you know, productive benefits from this land. So these are very much rhetorical arguments that are being made about property, power, um, security. Um, they're not... Um, just it's not just ethnic banter jokes among, among people among themselves you know having fun and just poking fun it's there's a, there's actually a lot going on with these stereotypes there is there definitely is and but you just describing this in a very quick way i think it's uh again such a loaded question of what is an ethnic group and as you mentioned um I, I'm, I'm interested in this aspect of the university playing a big role in this. Um, as you mentioned, that you have these new institutions um, ra- raising up in Europe again. Um, and so they have a big effect on how these names and, and ethnonyms and these perceptions of others actually play. Um, correct? So I think they have a, they have a big yes, influence. Absolutely. It's... Um... There is a caveat because um, the universities are the places where learned people, and these are priests, um, um, were able to study and also so produce the texts that have survived. So we, unfortunately, we have much less um, examples of, of, of you know what's being talked about in the streets, etc. So we can't research that because we don't have we we simply just don't have the material to research it. So there's always a sort of skewed. Um, aspect to because we're looking at you know we're looking at what survived and this is what has been produced um, by these learned people but absolutely so in the 12th century uh, universities begin to appear um, often also supported by centers of power such as for instance the French monarchy in in, in Paris and there um, the young men because that's who they were uh, studied um, for instance, they studied the Artis Liberalis program, so they studied um, r- rhetoric and grammar and all that kind of stuff. But then they went on to also study law and medicine and theology. And they were hugely um, excited and um, concentrate on the new texts that 
are available to them, uh, which are translations from the Greco and Arabic um, scientific world of natural philosophical texts. Um, and particularly Aristotle becomes incredibly important in the 13th century, uh, but also all kinds of medical texts, um, but also in, also in the fields of, of um, geometry and so sort of the, the sort of the natural philosophical um, field. And they write a lot of commentaries about this and it, it has a huge impulse. It has a huge impact on the development of, of scholastic thought in this period. And they also, in the 12th and 13th century, begin to produce a lot of regimens. So these are sort of manuals of conduct on how students, for instance, should behave themselves, but also how household members uh, should behave, how rulers, how princes should behave, but also advising how to rule, how to govern, how to govern your household, how to govern um, your city, etc. cetera. Uh, and these, ide- these regimens are also very much influenced by this Greco and Arabic thought. And in both these kind of texts, um, the idea that ethnicity, that groups are determined by the environment and place where they come from, where they dwell, uh, is present. And this has to do with the ancient Greek theory um, of climate that was um, first developed by Hippocrates. Um, So more than 2,000 years ago in Airs, Waters, Places, um, Hippocrates, who was a physician, um, wrote that characteristics of human beings are determined to a large extent by the um, terrain where people live, but also the climate um, in which they dwell. So, for instance, if you're living in a cold climate, you would be naturally more bold and rash. And if you're dwelling in a hot climate, you would be naturally more intelligent, but also uh, fearful and cunning because you would be afraid to lose too much blood um, because of the heat. And this idea that environment and climate determines um, both your physical and your mental uh, qualities or capacities was used by Aristotle, for instance, in his politics when he's talking about natural slavery to say that certain groups dwelling in certain territories are therefore more predestined to certain to dwell with certain forms of governance so for instance if if you are a southern type and you're um, um, quite uh, fearful then it's better to have a sort of authoritative regime that that tells you what to do and the people in the north the rash people also had to be um, who who were more freedom loving so you had to take that into account but so so these there are various sort of political forms of governance that um, that Aristotle relates to climate and environment. And this is an argument that in later in the development of slavery um, was very um, helpful to justify slavery to say, well, look, certain uh, groups of people are destined to, to take on a role as being um, a servant rather than a master because of the, of the natural environment and therefore their sort of hereditary features. So these ideas, especially from the 12th century, become more, um, they're studied more, they're talked about more in um, in texts that are produced in Western Europe once these Greek and Arabic texts are translated um, via Spain and Sicily and Byzantium and become available also in, 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 
in Northern Europe. Um, and these are also picked up on by courts, by rulers, because they obviously would, you know, this is valuable information. Um, it's, it's, it's valuable information to have, for instance, ethnography produced when you are colonizing a region to know, you know, what kind of people are allegedly living there, um, but also to be able to support your own claims when you are trying to uh, conquer a, a territory and and to justify that. So um, these the men who study at the universities often also went on to work in these courts, uh, took these ideas with them, and for rulers this yeah this, this was important valuable sort of intelligence um, but also justification for for what they were doing, especially also in the Crusades. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We'll get to that in a minute, but. Um... Uh, how widespread were these? Um, so uh, we're talking about scholars studying them on universities, but what happens in the society, in the community? What, does anything change or um, are things different before these ideas resurface? Um, do we know anything about that? Uh, yeah, so this is a, a difficult question to answer, which has to do with what I just mentioned, that you know we work as a historians with um, the with the texts that have survived, and these are very often produced by an elite. So it's always hard to, to make statements about, you know, what you can't research. I did do my, my best to try and work out how widespread they were, and you do see um, that these stereotypes, so the contents of the actual stereotypes, are very widespread. So uh, the f- Franks could be saying something about the Anglo-Saxons and and German writers would be responding to the same kind of stereotype. So in that sense, um, I, I think they were circulating quite broadly. But then again, the international, the universities and the schools in this period were very international. Uh, students came from, from all over Europe to study in Paris. So in that sense, it's not that strange that they were using the same type of, of images. You, I also looked at proverbs, and there you do also see, to a certain extent, the same type of images circulating. This can suggest that they are, that this is a sort of banter that is, is more widespread also than what intellectuals are saying. But I can't really go much farther than that because I simply just don't have the material so my focus has really been on the centers of power, the, the, the centers of knowledge, the courts, and how they have been talking about ethnic groups and what it's done in, for their you know, claims to power um, in colonization movements, etc. Yeah, I think that's the same case throughout history for most of the case that, you know, it's, it is this elite that we study in, in many documents, as, as you mentioned. Um, so my big takeaway from this book was this idea of environmental determinism, as you mentioned, environment affecting both your character, but also your physical characteristics. And, you know, it sounds so Atlantish if you actually say that to somebody in today's world uh, that, you know, your environment will actually affect you in so many ways. And it's just such an interesting concept. Um, so you... You, you said it originates from the Greco-Arabic um, world. And um, I think on your book, you talk about the humoral um, uh, theory or approach. Um, it, it, I, it's just fascinating to, to really think that um, 
environment, people feel that environment it actually, you know, um, cultivates you as a human. Yeah. And, so yeah. Yeah. Um, so environment when they when sources um, from antiquity, but also in the medieval period, talking about environment, it's all it's almost difficult to distinguish sometimes between what they consider environment and what they consider culture. It's one slides into another. So the location where a person is dwelling, um, you know, the, the, the surroundings, whether you're not li- you're living on a mountain or on a, on a plain, uh, whether you're in a green environment or in a in a dry uh, environment, um, and um, the way that people use the environment um, and have practices and, and cultural customs related to the environment, also eating and drinking customs, you know, what they. Um, take from the environment is 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 very much interconnected um, uh, with one another, and so it almost seems that for, that culture and environment are, are sort of yeah they slide into to one another. Um, humoral theory, which you just mentioned, is a sort of substrand of environmental um, theory. It's it was so so Hippocrates um, in the fourth century before uh, uh, BCE. Um, he um, talked about, you know, how environment and places would uh, shape features of peoples. Uh, Galen, um, a physician in the second century um, CE, he um, wrote a huge number of medical texts in which he, for instance, in which he sort of really developed this idea of hu- of the humors, the four um, sort of their bodily fluids and combinations of these bodily fluids together determine what your a person's complexion would be. And you, these are fluids of melan. They can be melancholy from. Um, they can be um, sanguine, which is a sort of blood. Um, they can be uh, phlegmatic, um, and they can be uh, choleric. And together, these the combination of the balance of these fluids make up your complexion. And this complexion uh, has a huge impact on on, for instance, your mental. Um, uh, features. So for, if you're hot-headed, you're more likely to be sort of a choleric type than if you are melancholy, which is, a, I think, an image that we still understand uh, today. Um, humoral theory is also used to talk about ethnic groups, especially from the 13th century, um, but especially in talking about um, pathologizing actually what happens to groups after, from a Christian perspective, the fall of mankind occurs. So uh, according to um, Christian theology, so Adam and Eve, you know, the first two people were, they were in dwelling in, in Eden um, and they were having a wonderful time and they were, there was no ill health, there was no disease. Um, but then there was the, the snake and etc. Eve, you know, she gets, uh, she, um, she entices um, Adam, and so they get kicked, kicked out of paradise, and paradise is environmentally perfect place also, not too hot, not too cold. Um, and then once they're kicked out of paradise, they their bodies become corrupt. And the worst kind of corruption that actually sets in is the melancholy corruption. And this idea that some bodies become particularly melancholy is then tied to specific lineages. Um, and, and these lineages are the Jewish um, people uh, also talking about women and, for instance, talking about serfs, so talking about people who are sort of, you know, semi-unfree uh, laborers. And these people, um, so Jews and serfs, for instance, are then 
considered to have melancholy bodies in some medical texts. And this is also a way of gendering these ethnic groups to say, because they're also, um, so for instance, in 13th century scientific texts, um, they, some of them say that Jews actually menstruate also, um, which is a, um, a result of the corruption of their bodies, like women. And it's, so it's also a way of, of talking in, in gendered terms about sort of effeminacy, their, their weakness, um, if you're working from a sort of male, rational st- perspective of having to be strong. Um, and so, again, it's, yeah, it's a way of othering using medical science in that period to talk about different kinds of groups, to talk about them in terms of heredity also, in terms of um, uh, religious, um, so they're religious constructions of, of, of cursed lineages um, that um, have become hereditary, uh, hereditary according to these texts. And it's also a way of um, organizing labor. So it's organizing uh, uh, the division of, of, of labor. So, for instance, also serfs are talked about being melancholy in, in, in some cases, um, and um, they are have corrupted bodies. And these groups, uh, serfs, women, Jews, um, are also have you know have less rights in some legal have a different legal status. So um, it's it's science is being used here to. Um, to it's not just talking about health in the sense of how we're going to cure people, but it's also talking about health to to, to make a distinction between to to create categories, and you see that humoral theory, in for instance, is also used in educational texts from this period, talking about the the, the qualities, the intellectual capacities of students, of pupils in the classroom, <laughs> saying you know some are more intelligent than others, some are more mel- melancholy than others. Some of the youth is more sanguine. Um, that means that they are they're you know very healthy and um, in good spirits, but perhaps you know slightly less um, inclined to pay attention in class. So you see here also you know these are sort of also sort of psychological frameworks that are being used to to talk about um, um, how through education. Um, uh, certain groups are, you know, destined to take on certain roles in society and others are are destined to do perhaps more uh, manual labor and not intellectual labor. So, um, yeah, there's science um, in that sense is a very important, um, um, it's a very important lens to use to look at how ethnicity is being constructed in this period long way before 18th century scientific racism. I think that scientific racism has a very long history that is not properly understood um, at the moment. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, it just seems like that, you know, things are piling up uh, to lead to this distinction of peoples uh, by these scholars, uh, students that were studying these. Um, and I think it's interesting how, you know, um, religion, religious thoughts, um, took on that uh, and used some of this and probably reframed and reinterpreted cer- certain um, certain of these ideas from the past. And they, they kind of took a new form and then piled on to each other, I guess, to come up with this um, these distinctions uh, in many ways. 
Yeah, absolutely. So there's, you see, it's sort of, it's 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 very entangled religious uh, constructions, also of of virtues and vices, and medical constructions of mental qualities, um, what's bad for you, what's good for you. Uh, these um, and also the language that they use to, to to talk about these things. So both in religion and in medicine, they'll, for instance, use the term spirit, spiritus, um, and it's sometimes really hard because uh, the people producing these learned texts are. Um, you know, men of the church or monks who are well, you know, they're the intellectuals who are well versed in natural philosophy. So they're the two worlds are are, are one. Um, so you know, where does religion stop and and science start? It's that can be really hard um, to um, to to distinguish in this period. Uh, what but what you do see in religious thought is so the the idea of thinking in genealogies and thinking of um, you know, biblical. Who, which ethnic groups are the inheritors of of biblical uh, lineages is 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 very present, um, and then that becomes also medically interpreted. Yeah, yeah and and I mean, yeah, and, and on practice we see this. Uh, um, I like I like to study the East, so I, I re- reading your book, it was really interesting to see this West, East, North, South, as you said, past to present. Um, distinctions. Uh, and since we're talking about Western Europe, you know, they're always presented as, you know, more powerful, more more fit in many ways than, you know, the people that they're seeing as the other. And the concept of the other is also really important in this because uh, with these methods and theories, you othering others from your own group for a particular purpose and, and, and reason and goal. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. These are so. These are very much sort of self representations that um, um, you do in some cases see self representations in which that which are also negative. So you you know it's it's not just for instance Westerners only saying okay we're manly, strong, disciplined, and 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 other people are, um, but they are often um, they are often mirror images. Um, and it's a it's a it's a way of you know distinguishing distinguishing yourself from others because ethnicity is very relational. It's it has to do with with maintaining boundaries, and you have to create these boundaries somehow. And using these images is is, is one way of doing so. Um, and they yeah they can be very ethnocentric. And then depending on um, so within Christianity, you'll have a lot of this mirroring going on. You know, you'll have Anglo-Saxons saying terrible things about. Um, about pigs, and you'll have Germans saying uh, uh, all kinds of stuff about um, northern of uh, Norwegians, etc. Well, they don't use the term Norwegian, but um, so um, it's not just interreligious; it's also within um, Christendom. But then also, it is um, talking for, about Muslims, talking about Jews, and so you always have to really bear in mind how the you know what is the social and f- and economic. Um, framework in which these discussions, this banter, or these you know very serious slurs are being made, is that you know is it a very hierarchical relationship that's going on because then it's more racial, or is it, for instance, you know when um, clerics in, in the University of, of Paris who are all from a sort of the same background and have the same legal status as as clergymen are joking among themselves, yeah, then it's more ethnic banter, um, and then it. It's less racial, I would say. 
Yeah, and I think that's a great segue to the first crusade because <laughs> you do mention it in your book. And I think um, how I read it at least is that it was a great way for some of these theories to be tested, to put into test and, and to to exercise some of these ideas into actual you know, colonization and moving to the East, to in many ways the past. And you have this religions component as well. And um, yeah, talk to us a little bit about that, your 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 take on the first crusades and, and the use of this uh, ethnic mentality. Yeah, so what really struck me is, um, so in some of the uh, sources talking about the first crusade, and there are some very famous um, chronicles that, that have written extensively about the first crusade, the, the people producing them are sometimes monks who themselves actually have never set foot in, in Palestine. So they, they're writing about all these battles and, and everything that's going on, but they're writing from their monastic cells in, in Western Europe. And for instance, someone like William of Malmesbury, who, 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 who was a very intellectual, very clever historian, he, he, he wrote, you know, he produced his chronicles um, uh, from England. And um, so he uses environmental theory to really talk about the, the traits of the of the Saracen or Turkish fighters, um, really talking about that they because they are Easterners that they were uh, less um, brave and and, and 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 they were cunning, but they weren't so they weren't really equipped for warfare, and hence um, uh, this explains why especially the French, the Franks, um, were victorious. So um, in that sense, you see that this whole environmental frame intellectual um, theoretical framework is is used to ex- to explain how uh, certain parties are, are winning whereas if you actually um, look at um, if you look at sources describing the uh, relationships between the different contingents on this crusade you'll you'll see that there's a lot of intergroup um, um, arguing and rude things that are being said all along in which the Franks are very good at sort of claiming for themselves this position of being um, the, the most, the best equipped fighters fighting in God's course. So they're very, the Franks are very good at saying we are the, you know, we're the chosen people, we're the destined people on this, on this course to, um, to, to re-conquer re, um, Palestine. And this is very important in an eschatological narrative also of um, uh, conquering Palestine so that in the, the end days that Christ can return to, to, to earth and, and there'll be um, um, and a sort of apocalyptic apocalyptic war and then so so that's a, that's very much um a, a part of it um so there you see um that the relational aspect of ethnicity is is very strong in the sense that it's a christian army with different contingent who are fighting alongside one another but a, in a lot of a lot of the time they are really competing with one another on who is the best Christian warrior. Um, so it's, it's highly competitive. Um, but then there are certain moments when there are, you know, large battles and then it really turns into a Christian narrative of who has, you know, God on his side and that they are fighting a just battle and that's why they conquered Jerusalem, etc. Um, so yeah, you see again um, ideas of, of religion and 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 science really intermingling when talking about who's equipped not only to defend your own domesticated space, your own territory, but also who 
who's equipped to fight on God's side, as which would be for Christians, it would be, for instance, the Franks who would cl- make this claim. Yeah, yeah. And that's where um, I think you mentioned a few uh, military manuals as well, because we mentioned, you know, the, the religious aspect, the medicine aspect, and then the, there is this mi- mi- military um, approach as yes, well. Yes, uh, yes. There's a wonderful, uh, very important source, De Re Militari by Vegetius, who was a, a 4th, 5th century a military strategist who wrote a manual on how to lead your army. It's a source that's not um, explored that much, but it's, I, it's, it was very important in the period. There are hundreds and hundreds of manuscripts that have survived. Uh, and it was very, you know, it's, it was important for, for courts and for rulers because, mili- you know, fighting was, was an important um, daily business um, in a lot of cases of, of these courts and, and uh, yeah, there's constant strife going on. Um, and this manual not only, so it uses environmental theory to a strong extent because if there's one area in which public health and medicine is important, it is in the military. If you if you have armies, it's so important. If you're if you're on a campaign, it's so important to factor in the environment where you are, what that you are dealing with. You know how you have access to clean water, what you do for sanitation, because the threat of your um, army perishing from an epidemic is is actually larger than being killed in battle. So if there's one area in which medicine is was developed throughout the centuries, it is in the army. So you see a lot of this medicine and environmental theory in Vegetius, but he also uses it to write about which armies, which recruits are best equipped to fight the battles. And then this is used to um, to talk about which ethnic groups are best equipped to fight battles. Yeah, yeah. Uh, man, I can talk about this for a long, long time. Um, but one thing I, I will say is that um, it's, it was kind of uh, enlightening to read your book because we kind of see kind of this Western approach in this, so all of these theories. But then um, I studied a little bit later the Fourth Crusade and more like the 13th, the 14th century. And some of these things actually do carry on still um, in those times with the Frankish states and um there's there, there is some of that still carrying on very strongly actually yeah and i think i mean because i only studied you know a, a, a couple of centuries and only western europe um, and and it was more than enough for me but um i think there's still a lot of work to be done um on other regions other periods um and and how these ideas develop and how and also but also for instance resisted um, and adapted because this is one thing that I um, unfortunately wasn't able to study enough in my book. I'm, so I'm talking about discourses and I'm talking about these ideas that are circulating and these images that are circulating. But this doesn't mean to say that that people were locked in this sort of mental world in which they were constantly um, behaving amongst themselves, you know, in social relations, one of the um, locked in these ideas. There are, you know, a lot of cases in which people can resist ethnic stereotypes or racial stereotypes or just don't find them actually that appealing or, or you know, or not, they're not working to their, in their own life words to their own advantage or they just don't believe in them or et cetera. So um, I think that's very important to mention 
um, and also that you know it's, it's not set in stone. These ideas adapt um, because um, uh, what happens at universities changes, what happens in in, in social economic uh, relationships changes, etc. Um, so I think it would be very beneficial to look at how these ideas, for instance, also in other regions were used and maybe in a different way um, um, to, to really, yeah, to, to get a proper understanding of how science, religion um, intersects when, when, when we're talking about ethnicity. Yeah, the more I study ethnicity in medieval Europe, the more confused I get. But but the amount of uh, of uh, complexity and uh, just just the whole the whole idea and development of, of ethnicity in medieval Europe is such an intriguing concept because there's so much content into it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, what surprised you the most while conducting your research? In yeah, what surprised me was actually when I was. <laughs> compiling the index for my book so at the end um and i was just listing the stereotypes per ethnic group and just the sh- also the sheer nastiness of a lot of the stuff that was being saying it actually quite sickened me um and i hadn't i mean i knew that all this stuff was being said and was going on but once you sort of start to list it for an index so then it really sort of sticks out uh, and also the, the number of comparisons between ethnic groups and animals uh, and this isn't um, uh, it's it's not just dehumanizing it's it's a way also again of organizing labor and property rights because if you say that a, that a certain ethnic group for instance take again the example of the Irish who are sometimes in anglo-norman sources, uh, also compared to beasts, or the Welsh are compared to beasts. It's it's a way of stripping them of certain rights, claims, you know, historical claims to the territory where they're dwelling, claims to the efforts that have been made through their labour to reaping the benefits of their labour. Um, and and I was really struck by how often this is actually happening. And it, it yeah, I thought it was quite shocking uh, to see. Yeah, it's quite a lengthy uh, index as well, with a lot of uh, a, a lot of these descriptions. And I, I was just th- thinking while I was sending you the invitation for this podcast that you need a whole podcast series just to talk about all of this content in in your book, as it's so lengthy. Great. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, um, where do you see the topic of medieval ethnicity developing in the future, and what are we still missing from research? Yes. That's a very good question. Um, I think the most important, um, most fruitful way f- to look at it is to really see how racial capitalism. So, racial capitalism is um, looks at how social and economic value is extracted from bodies um, in a capitalist system, and. I think there is a strong intersection with Galenic thought. So with medical Galenic thought, which developed, especially in the 14th and 15th century, while capitalist markets were also emerging in, in Western Europe, um, because Galenic thought um, really uh, works with the idea that the body of individuals is correlates um, in a certain way with the body politic, with the society in which um, a person dwells. And um, there's a whole discourse in the 14th and 15th century about able-bodiedness. So who has, who is able-bodied enough 
to um, to work and therefore not have access to certain um, support, for instance, to to charity, for instance. And at the same time, you see, especially after the Black Death in in the 14th century, so after the big plague uh, outbreak that um, there's a lot of social mobility, there's a lot of movement, there's a lot of um, people are moving from, from rural areas to towns, uh, but there's also a lot of um, increasing poverty levels, increasing um, uh, groups of people who don't have um, meet access to means of sustenance themselves and um, you know, are really sort of in the hands of, 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 of the labor markets. And so how medicine is involved in organizing these labor markets and how that is really, yeah, I think it's it's very close to racial capitalism, I think is would is something that hasn't been explored and is very worthwhile exploring because it helps us to understand how um, norms, you know, representations, ideas about bodies or about able-bodiedness and practices, how they intersect. And looking at the medical world is, is, a, is a helpful way to, to understand this because the physicians and surgeons, they produce ethno, ethnographic descriptions. They write treatises about, uh, about um, bodies and minds, um, but they also work in practice with people who are laboring. Uh, they care for them. They treat them. They sometimes also... Uh, value them, for instance, in the slave trade, in the 40, not not only in Europe but also um, in the Mamluk world. There's an excellent book by Hanan Barker, that most precious um, merchandise, which discusses how um, in the Mamluk world um, physicians produced manuals how to appraise a slave, how to work out its value based on on all kinds of ethnic and bodily and facial features. So you see physicians. Um, both, you know, talking normatively, talking, um, producing intellectual treatises, but also in practice working with bodies of people and determining, um, extracting social and economic value. So uh, I think there's a lot of work to be done in this area. And then also comparatively, obviously, um, looking beyond Europe, looking at how other regions organized um, labor along these lines. Yeah, those would definitely be... I think there, as you mentioned, there medieval ethnicity. It's just a topic that it's kept standing on. I think um, your approach, I mean, to medicine and looking at these physicians, as as you mentioned, and then affecting multiple sects of the society. Yeah, that would be quite an interesting, um, hopefully, future research that we might be able to see. Yeah, that would be fantastic. <laughs> Well, great, Claire. Um, I think we've taken a lot of your time and uh, I thank you for that. Uh, I would like to ask you one last question before you go. Um, what are you up to nowadays? Um, any interesting projects uh, in the works? Well, so, so I'm, you might not be surprised that I am actually working on what I just uh, talked about. So uh, Hellenic, Hellenic medicine and racial capitalism. But I'm focusing particularly on uh, on two groups, on armies and naval recruits. So people working on ships and people working in armies. And this is a, it's, it's super, I think, um, um, interesting because um, you can, these are two groups that have a lot of documentation on how they were cared for, the food that they received, the shelter that they received, but also the injuries that they uh, received, et cetera, the wages that they received. So it's, it's a way to get much closer 
to actual practices than what I've done previously. So for me, that's really exciting. No, that's great. It's uh, nice. Yes, uh, you talked about what's needed and now you're working toward what's filling that fulfillment. <laughs> I think that's amazing. <laughs> that's great. Clear? <laughs> yes, that sounds great. Um, thank you once again very much for being on, on the show today. I really enjoyed our, our conversation and I hope we had another three hours to talk about these things. But uh, thank you so much and take care. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me.